Hello, welcome to the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast, where we grow smarter learning from the stories and skills, ideas, and insights of farmers and agrarians from around the world. And we talk about philosophy from the farm. Today, we are joined by Glenn Jampool, the owner and founder of Finca Rosa Blanca Coffee Farm and Inn. Together, we talk about the start of Finca Rosa Blanca, what shade-grown coffee means, and much, much more. This was a fantastic conversation, and I had an absolute blast talking about coffee with Glenn. So I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Glenn Jampool, welcome to the show. Thank you for uh, being here with us today. You know, I'm really excited that today we get to do the interview in person at your beautiful resort here, Finca Rosa Blanca, right? What does that mean? Well, Finca Rosa Blanca in Spanish means white farm, uh, white rose farm. Okay. But it doesn't actually pertain to that. The name comes from a Jose Martí poem, a very famous Cuban poet who wrote a poem called uh, La Rosa Blanca. And it starts out by saying, I grow a white rose for both my friends and those who also would uh, sling bad words at me (laughs) uh, in June or in January. And for anybody, I'm always cultivating a white rose. It's a very sweet poem about forgiveness and about uh, tenderness. So my mother, who was really the founder of Finca Rosa Blanca, mm-hmm. um, she loved that poem, and uh, we decided to do homage to uh, Jose Marti uh, using that name. Well, and names are always one of those things. I mean, we were just talking about family names before we started recording here. The name of the farm, I think, I always love to see there's that level of creativity in it, because too many places I go to, it's like, Windy Hollow Farm. <laughs> well, great. You have wind in a hollow. That's very original. So yeah. Finca Rosa Blanca, I love the story there. Uh, getting started, would you mind sharing a brief biographical sketch with the audience? Yeah. Um, I'm uh, originally from Los Angeles, California. I grew up there. I went to uh, school in Northern California at UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. where I studied um, environmental design for my bachelor's oh, wow. degree. Which was part of and compartmentalized in the art department because most of the environmental design had to do with things that would affect the uh, environment Mm -hmm. and uh, how things would evolve in terms of design, taking into consideration the environment. Uh, But it really sort of swung towards an avant-garde ceramics, furniture making, glass blowing, Mm -hmm. uh, weaving and things like that. I fell in love with ceramics and spent a lot of time working on contemporary and very kind of abstract, uh, non-useful ceramics in terms of, uh, you know, everyday life. Um, They aren't coffee cups. (laughs) No. Well, they were coffee cups, but you wouldn't want to pour anything in them. And uh, later evolved into uh, painting and sculpture and got my uh, master's degree and my master's of fine arts at Berkeley in uh, painting and sculpture. Um, And in uh, 1982, I moved to New York City uh, to uh, continue with my career, which was starting to take off a little bit, and I was actually starting to survive as an artist. Um, Useful thing. Very useful and very, uh, you know, uh, unexpected, actually, for me. 
Um, and uh, in 1985, my wife and I, uh, still not very affluent at all on any mm-hmm. level, uh, but my wife was a high school teacher and I was working uh, painting. And when I wasn't making money, I was working as a uh, contractor uh, remodeling apartments for wealthy mm-hmm. New Yorkers. Um, we decided we wanted to go on a vacation somewhere in Latin America that wasn't Mexico. We both were from California and both had spent a lot of time in Mexico yeah. already. And ended up hearing about Costa Rica uh, and from surfers and from water people and from uh, environmentalists. But also um, I had read a little bit about how progressive it was as a country. It had no army. Mm -hmm. It used all the money that would have gone to uh, the armed forces in education and culture. Uh, The uh, famous president, Pepe Figueres, said, no more guns but violins. Um, and the uh, fact that 25% of the country was in national parks, all of that package combined really drew us to coming to Costa Rica. We had a phenomenal trip, fell in love with the country, with the people, and I told my mother, who I was very close to about it, she came down shortly thereafter. She fell in love with Costa Rica, and at that moment we decided to buy a little piece of land and maybe build a small house or someplace that we could all be together. And my mother had tremendous quantity of friends all over the world. She was a very charismatic voyager. Um, (laughs) And so we bought this, uh, what had been a coffee farm, but the farmer who sold it to us had, had some very bad luck and had rented it to a motocross company who set up motocross here, destroying all the coffee, all of the trees, except for these giant fig trees, which you can see around. We have about 12 or 13 of them. And that went bust and we showed up. So (laughs) the timing was great. We got this farm. We were surrounded by uh, the coffee culture of Costa Rica and Mm -hmm. one of the premier zones of coffee growing. And without any knowledge whatsoever, jumped in and started to plant many things, including coffee. Well, it's definitely gorgeous. One of the things that's really neat and attracted me here, and actually, before I get to that, the thing I want to ask first, so environmental design and art. I And what I find interesting is you also worked as a contractor and remodeling. There was, I used to work at an apple orchard as a kid, and the guy that bought it, built it, he used to be a builder. And the comment that his like grandchildren always made about how he designed the place was that you could tell he had an eye for where things should be. I'm interested. So do you think that the fact that you studied art and had an environmental design and worked in construction helped lead to designing and building this place? Well, yeah. I mean, in particularly in the pragmatic sense, mm-hmm. because... As an artist, I'm always willing to dabble and to experiment and to uh-huh. um, try things. Uh, but there was a great responsibility here in terms of doing something that was useful, uh, mm-hmm. a cabin for us to live in. We had to build We had to build a small warehouse to store all of the materials. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, it was tugging at me, and my mother depended a great deal on me for this, to build something that would last, mm-hmm. that had some aesthetic component yeah. uh, clearly stated, and was uniquely ours. Mm-hmm. So the combination of wanting to do something that was really artistic and interesting visually, 
had to be combined with my uh, lessons learned, trial and error life as a contractor with building things that didn't last or fell apart or Mm -hmm. uh, weren't uh, useful in terms of traffic, um, weren't comfortable in terms of human activity, uh, and many other things. And I think the combination uh, helped me. I still made a lot of mistakes, but it helped me uh, really put together the the kind of interior design in particular and the traffic patterns that we have here at the uh, hotel. Well, and that's the thing I think that most people don't notice unless they really think about it. The traffic patterns matter, especially when you've got people coming in and out all the time. I mean, I think probably in the midst of the pandemic, more people were aware of traffic patterns than they had been before. Yeah. But that's only because they put stickers on the ground. Uh, you can really tell everything around here is enjoyable to look at, which is so great and obviously should be a great component to any resort or location that's attracting people. Well, sure. You need you need for people to feel like they've had an unforgettable experience and you want them to be comfortable. But we also felt a equal amount of responsibility to the planet. Mm-hmm. So we had to find ways to combine combine what, what is now called sustainability yeah. um, into the product that we were creating here, which was a small hotel. Um, it started out as a home for our family, but we soon realized that we would not be able to maintain and, and continue with this project unless we mm-hmm. had some kind of income from it. And coffee was very new and young, and we didn't know what we were doing, so that wasn't a possibility yet. Uh-huh. Um, so we had to take in consideration all of the aspects that one would need for a business to survive. Mm-hmm. But we also felt very... Um, uh, uh, driven and very uh, des- desired greatly to be very um, cognizant of what we were doing in terms of our impact. Mm-hmm. Our impact for garbage, our impact for um, reforesting what this blank canvas, which was a motocross field, the use of native plants, mm-hmm. um, uh, protecting the water. We had a well that was tapping into the aquifer below us. Uh, our community, socioeconomic uh, relationship with our community, um, hiring local people. And there were many, many parts of that which we had no idea how they could uh, symbiotically function together mm-hmm. and still allow my business to grow. Yeah. Um, so we learned a lot from there. And to give you one example, um, we recycled everything here because we were felt that that was really important. And after we had a shed that we had built with all of these uh, tin and glass and plastic and cardboard and all these things, uh, it dawned on us, what do we do with this now? I mean, there was nobody here that wanted it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we had to, like, find ways to... Uh, we found a, a company that was making uh, glass products that said if we separated the colors, they would buy the oh. glass from us. You know, we had uh-huh. to innovate, and, and um, that, that was a, a difficult just, uh, sort of lesson to, to learn. Um, there were other things that became very positive for us. Having local people work for us, they were mm-hmm. very proud of what we were doing and yeah. were great salespeople and storytellers about this. Every uh, staff member I've talked to here has been 100% one of the best salespeople you could possibly have for this place. Well, that, they tell yeah. fantastic stories, just top notch. Yeah, they're, it's, it's great. Uh, you know, they're great advocates. 
but also it, it helped us understand the socioeconomic uh, cycle that we that we built mm-hmm. through this, which was um, that every time they got a paycheck, that money was spent locally in the community because that's where they live. So we were recycling money back into our community as well mm-hmm. as recycling waste products. And that is a really nice field not to have any leakage of... of uh, Resources. Yeah, money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't go to another country from some mega company that owns it in, in Britain or in China <laughs> or wherever. It stays right here in my local community. And people appreciate it in the community as well because the, their their family, their their sons, their daughters, their their cousins, their whoever are working here with us, and uh, they're big proponents of what we're doing. So you actually have several certifications for ecotourism, which I find fascinating. One of the things that I saw on your website and just kind of in some of the literature is you guys are actually transitioning from sustainability into regenerative practices. So I'm just curious, you guys have like literally have 100% on your sustainability report from what I've heard, which is kudos, amazing, fantastic. So now you guys are pushing towards regeneration. What does that look like for your operation? Well, I think the word sustainability was uh, came from a very good place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were a handful of us here in Costa Rica who were pioneers in, in building the idea of a tourism niche for our country that would mm-hmm. be about biodiversity, about socioeconomic uh, impact and things like that. And we thought of it as sustaining what Costa Rica was all about. And I'm sure in other countries like Australia and others who were also concerned with this had Mm -hmm. a similar uh, perspective. But um, as we've, as a race, as the human race have gone um, haphazardly uh, with a very biased and driven slant towards making money as opposed to sustaining what we had, mm-hmm. we're past the point of sustaining or mm-hmm. maintaining. We now have to return back what we've destroyed. So I see that as regeneration. And I think that that means, uh, you know, you have to be uh, reducing and eliminating your carbon footprint uh, because climate change is such a devastating um, phenomenon in the world, in the planet. And we have to consider all of the uh, impact we have as a business on the ground where we tread and start repositioning it back into where it can become a healthy, vibrant way of living. Mm-hmm. I want to ask a couple of questions specifically about the farm because I got a chance to do a coffee tour yesterday. It was amazing. Ulysses was my tour guide. So if you come here, you definitely need to ask for him. There were a couple of really cool things that I wanted to ask about because I thought they were amazing. First and foremost, I want to mention the farm is certified organic, which that's awesome. I'm an organic inspector. So getting to come here and drink the coffee, I'm of course looking at like the labeling and everything too. It's amazing. Definitely brings them home with me. But you guys use banana trees very specifically around the farm. Would you mind describing why you, what their purpose is? Yeah. Well, we have, when we bought the farm, there were no trees at all. And this was a result of the USAID coming to Costa Rica, and I'm sure other countries as well, but I only know about Costa Rica, in the 1970s 
and early 80s and suggesting to a lot of the coffee farmers who mostly were shade-grown coffee, lots mm-hmm. of banana and plantains and other poreau trees, coral trees, um, to cut all these trees down and their yield would go up by 15 or 20 percent. And, of course, the fine print at the bottom was, if you have problems now with uh, insects or other things, we have all of the chemicals you need to combat that. Um, so when we bought our farm, still being kind of tree huggers that we are, um, you know, uh, my Berkeley days had a big impact on me. Uh, I went to school in the late 60s. So oh, okay. Imagine. Uh, I, uh, my wife and I, who's my partner mm-hmm. um, in this, um, we decided that we would uh, allow whatever Poirot trees there were that had been completely trimmed and pruned down to nothing to grow out, and then we planted thousands and thousands of native trees there. Mm-hmm. Um, you would never guess this was once a motocross, like yeah, walking around right, it. Right, exactly. That's the idea. And, um, and the idea was not only to reforest the land and have a, allow the coffee to grow in a different kind of environment, uh, which we knew was possible because we knew the farms here, you know, many, many years ago had all been somewhat shaded or mm-hmm. very shaded. Uh, but also to create a symbiosis between the plants and trees that we allowed to grow there and the coffee. And one of the things that coffee really needs a lot of and sequesters where it can is nitrogen. Mm-hmm. So we uh, started not allowing the coral trees, which are huge nitrogen fixers, um, and we planted lots of trees that attracted birds mm-hmm. who, through the literal ecological footprint would leave droppings and there would create more microorganisms and uh-huh. you know the whole ecology literally as, as, a, as a word mm-hmm. the holistic point of view mm-hmm. was that everybody would do better if everybody was whole yeah so the banana trees and the plantain trees they, they grow very well here in Costa Rica they also afford um, various things to our coffee one is they store a tremendous amount of water in the stalks. Uh, bananas and plantains, that whole family, are actually grasses. They're not trees. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, they are very capable of uh, drawing uh, tremendous amounts of water, as you probably saw on the coffee tour, when we're very thirsty out in the middle of the coffee field, we don't have a drinking fountain. Yeah. So we just take our machetes and cut a chunk out of the banana stalk and wring it like a wet towel, and it'll give us a, a you know a, a half a quart of water just from that. It's really incredible. They, when you, the inside of it looks like a honeycomb with water on the inside, it's really fascinating if you've never seen it before. Exactly, and it's, and and they they provide shade for the young plants, mm-hmm. um, and they also when they fall, um, they the stalk is quite long. It tends to lay out and that moisture in there fortifies the soil, allows microbes to, to survive and live, and especially in the summer months when it's very dry. Um, so it, it, it's a complete cyclic plant for us. And ultimately, I love bananas. <laughs> and I eat them, and they're organic. Uh, we use all of the plantains and the bananas that, that I don't eat um, in our restaurant here uh, as fresh mm-hmm. organic fruit. But we also have lots of other fruit that grows in between the plants and around the plants on the edges of the road where we walk and the 
picking lanes that we use so the pickers can get the coffee. Uh, and citrus plants and uh, tropical fruits um, and herbs, uh, peppers, uh, chili, uh, many other things that we all that we use uh, in the restaurant. Well, and that's one of the other cool things is you have the restaurant right here on site. You guys even have a greenhouse for raising some of the vegetables you use here. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's great. It's one of the things that, again, when I was looking up the information, a friend of mine had been here and recommended that both that you would make a great guest on the show and that I should come visit. And looking up the information, I'm like, oh, this is definitely a place I need to come to. You use the word and term shade grown. Would you mind describing what that means for people who might not know the difference between shade grown versus non-shade grown coffee? Yes, well, it is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, the coffee um, can grow in full sun. Mm -hmm. um, it, if the cycles of rain are not uh, particularly effusive, uh, many times it requires, uh, especially for younger plants, uh, irrigation. Mm -hmm. um, it also requires a certain kind of plant that's much uh, more, much hardier in terms of withstanding the intense uh, sun here. We're only uh, nine degrees above the equator. Oh, wow. Uh, we are at about 4,000 plus feet, uh, mm -hmm. which is where good coffee comes from about 3,500 feet up to about uh, 7,500 feet, um, uh, 6,000 feet, let's say. I'm thinking trying to do this in meters <laughs> and feet. From 1,000 meters to about 2,000 meters is where you find the best hard bean coffee. Um, and the, it does yield more coffee because instead of having a certain percentage of your farm in other kinds of plants, it's, it's coffee. Mm -hmm. So you, the yield increases, um, but it does require a lot more artificial maintenance than a shade-grown coffee. Um, one of the benefits of shade-grown coffee, especially where I am, which is uh, at 1,300 meters, 1,200 meters, is that um, it allows the coffee plant to grow a little bit slower and the beans mature a little bit slower. And a slower maturing bean often means a denser and more uh, oh. tasty bean. Okay. Uh, we, when they're, before we... Uh, process them. We call them cherries, actually, coffee cherries, because they're covered with a very sweet fruit. Uh, but uh, for the effects of the audience listening, we'll say coffee beans. Um, and this allows us to uh, regulate um, and to increase the density of our beans through the shade. There is a point at which too much shade combined with a lot of rain can actually be detrimental to the plants mm -hmm. because they need a good balance of both. So uh, a shade-grown coffee farm, uh, although it does tend to have better, slower maturing cherries, needs to be kept pruned so that a certain amount of sunlight does get in. Mm -hmm. The beauty of the Perot tree, which is the called a coral tree in English, uh, which is an exceptionally beautiful tree with bright orange flowers that start in around uh, November or so. Mm -hmm. um, and the birds love the uh, flowers. It's giant nitrogen-packed leaves which fall down and fertilize the, the coffee. When, it, when they fall, the tree basically almost becomes leafless. And that allows a lot of coffee, oh. and, which is very mm -hmm. nice for the final stages mm -hmm. of maturation of the cherry. 
Uh, but uh, when somebody says shade-grown coffee, basically they're talking about a coffee farm that has a lot of plants in it that give some or a lot of shade to the coffee. Mm-hmm. As an organic inspector, I get to visit lots of different places. Obviously, in the States, I'm not getting to see as much coffee as I'd like. I usually get to see it before it goes into the roaster. But one of the things that's usually the struggle is how much biodiversity does this farm have? Your farm is like so amazing on its biodiversity. I, I wish I was writing a report while I was here. It would make it just be so much more fun. Glenn, I want to quickly touch on your art. But I also want to ask, you had mentioned that you had some book recommendations for people that want to know more about coffee. So first and foremost, I just have to compliment the art. You've got it all around the resort here. It looks gorgeous. We've got both sculptures. We've got paintings on the wall, literally on the wall in some places. It's definitely something people will enjoy when they come check it out. But also books on coffee. What are your recommendations? Well, I think it's really important if you love coffee to like anything, to kind of investigate it a little yeah. bit. Um, there's so many myths and uh, um, misinformation. misinformation out there about coffee. And um, one of the things that I will just touch on very quickly and then get to the book is that um, I think, especially uh, in the United States, mm-hmm. who has in pure numbers drinks more coffee than anybody in the world, <laughs> uh-huh. not per capita, but in pure numbers, mm-hmm. Uh, the real cognoscenti of coffee in in the United States, which there are many centers, Seattle, San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, where the West Coast is where it really took off for the United States and New York, they're oftentimes uh, in some areas very focused on kind of a fashionable styling of how to drink coffee or how to make coffee, uh, (laughs) as opposed to, let's say, the Scandinavians who are really experts and connoisseurs on coffee and have been for, uh, you know, My Swedish grandfather would very much agree with that. Yes. In fact, the Swedish and the Finnish drink more coffee per person than anybody in the world. Oh, wow. And uh, are also really gourmet coffee consumers. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that people often talk about to me, and, and even here in Costa Rica when we sell our coffee to boutique hotels and small uh, upscale restaurants because they want the quality that we're mm-hmm. offering and also like the fact that it's organic, although quality beats organic oh, every always. time. I mean, you can have the greatest... You can have all the certifications, but if the product sucks, no one's going to buy exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> it just doesn't, you know, you need to satisfy the expectations of your clients mm-hmm. or exceed them. Um, they'll ask me, We, I really like uh, a darker uh, roasted coffee. Mm-hmm. And this is based on the fact that at some point in their life or even currently, they're drinking a coffee that's a very dark roast, and they've grown accustomed to it, and they like it, and so they see it as the roast being what made that choice possible. But actually, the roast of a coffee is totally dependent on the attributes of the coffee bean, which can change year to year, even from the same farm and the same micro lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some coffees, like Geisha, and and the Latin American version of Geisha, which was hybridized and developed here in Costa Rica, although it's much more famous in Boquete, Panama than it is here uh, because it's phenomenal coffee there, um, uh, is a very fruity, subtle, um, dancing um, uh, kind of taste and Mm -hmm. aroma. 
And by roasting it too much, you destroy the acidity, which is an attribute, a, a thing we want, mm-hmm. which is that kind of light citrus uh, feel on the sides of your tongue that's very nice about good coffees. Mm-hmm. And all of the floral... Uh, cinnamon, jasmine, smells that you could get by dar- roast dark, uh, roasting it dark. So if somebody says, I love the geisha, uh, I love geisha coffee, but I like a, I want you to dar- uh, roast it in a dark roast for me, it's, it's uncomfortable for me because <laughs> it's like, you know, taking, uh, you know, your uh, Bentley convertible <laughs> and saying, I want you to put an MG hardtop on it. <laughs> so um, uh, it's, it's very, uh, the, the need to understand why and how coffee works. Mm-hmm. I really recommend people do a cupping, uh, but also the history of coffee and how it evolved. The best book that I found for that uh, is um, a book called Uncommon Grounds. Okay. It's uh, Mark uh, Pendergrass is his name, and a uh, very knowledgeable coffee cupper, a Q grader, which is the highest level of grading coffee, um, and uh, a real uh, fan of good coffee. I've actually had a few conversations with him via email. Mm-hmm. Um, and he really, this book really tells you the whole history of coffee, its, its evolution in the United States, um, you know, things about coffee that you wouldn't know, where it was discovered, supposedly. Um, now that's under discussion <laughs> as well. Originally they said Ethiopia, but now some people are saying, no, it was Yemen. Oh, really? Um, the word mocha mm-hmm. that we all know about coffee with chocolate actually comes from the port of Yemen called mocha. Oh, and that's why we say coffee sometimes mocha, but it's actually named after the port where all the coffee left to Europe from. Um, we call it Java sometimes because some of the best coffee in the world, and still today, is from Indonesia, mm-hmm. and that Java is, of course, one of the places in Indonesia where coffee is grown. And um, so there are lots of things that we need to know about coffee so that we really understand it as a beverage. And I would highly recommend going online and looking up medicinal attributes of coffee. There's a Harvard study done about, uh, uh, I guess, around uh, seven or eight years ago with about, I believe, 12,000 people they followed in the study, and they determined that drinking coffee lowers the possibility of Alzheimer's disease by 30% if you drink three or four, four cups of coffee a day. And that it also can help in um, help you cure any lesions you have in your liver. There's many, many um, medicinal attributes to coffee that people don't really realize how important uh, coffee can be as a medicine. Mm-hmm. And if you drink three or four cups of coffee a day, which most people do, yeah, I drink more because I'm, <laughs> I'm an addict, and also I have to quote unquote check the Th- coffee. That's right, poor soul. <laughs> I have to make sure it's good. You, if you're drinking three or four cups of coffee a day, you're drinking about seventy gallons of this coffee liquid a year, mm-hmm. putting it into your body. And if you're drinking non-organic coffee, for me, that's like yeah. really asking. 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, betting on the fact that coffee, which is a great sequesterer mm-hmm. of things in the soil. In fact, it's one of the best sequesters of carbon there is of any plant. Uh-huh. You're asking <laughs> to drink this liquid that's full of that. Um, in terms of taste, I don't think you can tell the difference between an organic coffee and a mm-hmm. conventional coffee. But in terms of uh, what's going into your body, I mean, logic just would tell it, me... It's pulling in all the other yeah, stuff you you're, don't You're want. cooking it with hot water. First, you're cooking it in a roaster, right? And so you're uh-huh. like, you know, baking it in. Yeah. And then you're grinding it, and then you're pouring hot water over, which lets just it all, lets kind, it of all kind of leach out. out. Oh. And you're like then drinking 70 gallons of that a year. So I, I'm not a dogmatic, everything here in the farm is organic and I yeah. like it when I can and I mm-hmm. choose organic mm-hmm. fruits if they're of high quality, but I'm not the kind of person who goes to a restaurant and goes, I'm not going to eat there because it's not yeah. organic. I just want good quality. But I mean, especially if, again, you're drinking that volume, I mean, just uh, the numbers eventually add up. The minimal amount your body probably doesn't have a problem with. In fact, I recently saw... Uh, there was a couple of tests in Canada where they're uh, testing the blood of pregnant mothers and fetuses, and they actually were finding traces of GMOs in the blood. They never thought that was going to happen. Yeah. Well, guess what? It did. So uh, just so many different things on that. I love, I love the fact that what you're advocating for is engaging with something. Most people especially in a day and age where we virtue signal so much that the drinking coffee because it's trendy or because it looks a certain way. People can even do the exact same thing with agriculture or with farming or with the resort. When really to appreciate something, it means engaging with it. It means getting to explore and learning something about it instead of just the surface level. Yeah, you know, uh, years ago we were in Edinburgh with my uh, oldest daughter, um, who grew up here on the coffee mm-hmm. farm, and obviously is quite knowledgeable about coffee, and has a. She's also a, a really, really good chef, cook. Oh wow! So she has this whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, her nose is incredible in terms of smells and things. So she really understands the quality of things through smell as well as. And we were in Scotland, and we went into a cafeteria there, a cafeteria, I mean, you know, for coffee. Uh-huh. In Spanish, it's cafeteria, which means about coffee. <laughs> so this was kind of what we would call maybe a hipster coffee shop. Uh-huh. And there were all these uh, hipster coffee baristas there. And the whole thing had that kind of aura of mm-hmm. like, you know, we're allowing you into our coffee shop <laughs> to pay uh-huh. us to drink this wonderful beverage that we have bought. And you have to sort of abide by our, mm-hmm. you know, context. Yes. Which is always a little bit, for me, it's like I'd rather drink coffee with some farmer out here, yeah. uh, you know, out in the <laughs> field from his thermos than do that. But, you know, sometimes you want a coffee and they generally mm-hmm. have really great coffees they buy at those places. So yeah. it's like, that's where I'm going to go. <laughs> so we're sitting there, and my daughter says that she orders a uh, double espresso. Mm-hmm. And I had a uh, just a regular black pour over. With the, they didn't call it pour over then. Pour over was actually invented, I think, here in Costa Rica. <laughs> we call it a chorreador, but it's, it uses the same exact system, except it's a piece of flannel cloth instead oh. of a filter. Okay. And we pour it the same way pour over with spirals. Uh-huh. So the barista brings us the coffee, and uh, we we're, my daughter gets her double espresso, and then she says to my wife, you know, I think I'm going to, like, 
I'm, my stomach's a little weird. I think I'm going to, um, you know, change it, my order. And then she says, no, just could you bring me some hot milk, please? And he says to her, we don't recommend that you drink this coffee with milk. So if you would have seen the faces that went <laughs> along our table, like, A, what are you talking about? B, what is the difference between somebody who loves coffee black and uh-huh. somebody who loves coffee with milk? The idea is that you love coffee, however yes. you take it. Obviously, if you really want to judge coffee Mm-hmm. At, at the highest level possible, like anything, mm-hmm. you need to drink it black because that's where all the flavor is and you don't want to hybridize it. But we just want people to enjoy coffee. Yeah. But the idea was is that, um, you know, here's a guy who's like trying to, uh, instead of edu- trying to educate us about this coffee, he was like, don't drink it black. Don't drink your espresso black. And I get it. I understand. Yeah. If you order a double espresso, drink a double espresso. But that kind of rubs me the wrong way, mm-hmm. that kind of attitude. Glenn, this has been an amazing interview. I have to get running here, but where can people go to learn more about you and your work and your beautiful farm? Well, um, you can go to fincarosablanca.com, which is our website for the hotel. And if you're interested also in the coffee, and there's some videos on both of these sites, go to caferosablanca.com, which is just specifically about our coffee farm. Uh, You can get to either one from the hotel to the coffee or from the coffee to the hotel on either of those two sites. Brilliant. And we'll link to all that information and also to the book you recommended in the show notes. Glenn, thank you again so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for coming here and enjoying our coffee with us. Big thanks to Glenn for joining us on the show. It was an incredible conversation and I had an amazing time visiting Finca Rosa Blanca. If you get a chance, it is a great trip. You can learn more about Finca Rosa Blanca by checking out their website at fincarosablanca.com and by following their social media, all of which we have linked in the show notes below. If you are new to the show, please subscribe on whatever your favorite podcast player of choice is. We're on all of them. While you are there, please leave us a rating and review, especially on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Tips on how to do this can be found at intellectualagrarian.com forward slash review. Thanks again for listening. This has been Terrence Lehew and the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast reminding you to keep farming the dream.